Hi, I'm Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And it's my pleasure to have with me on this month's AJG podcast, uh, Jeff Mother, who is the Director of Data Management at Hartford Healthcare, and Ray McKay, who is an interventional cardiologist and is co-director of quality for the Vascular Institute at Hartford HealthCare. Thank you guys both for being with me today. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about a very important and interesting study entitled The Impact of Famotidine Use on Clinical Outcomes of Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. And of course, we're always interested in the latest data on COVID-19 and what therapeutics may be effective, and we've heard about a lot of different therapeutics, some of which may be panning out, maybe some not panning out. And we've been hearing a lot about famotidine for months now, since almost the beginning of the pandemic. So why don't we just start off, Dr. McKay, maybe you could tell us a bit about why clinically should we even think about famotidine as a potential treatment for COVID-19, which presumably is why you did this study in the first place. Absolutely. Um, we, we became interested in famotidine after seeing the report out of New York City that came out of uh, Northwell Health and from Columbia that was published online in May, where their researchers described the impact of famotidine in their hospitalized COVID-19 population. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but what that study suggested was that the drug was associated with a significant reduction in both in-hospital mortality as well as with the combined adverse outcome of mortality and requiring mechanical ventilation. At that point, Jeff Mather has been very fastidiously and prospectively collecting data on our COVID population. And at that time uh, in May, we had about 900 COVID-positive patients that were hospitalized. And we asked just simply to see what the data was uh, within our data set. Jeff wasn't aware of the results out of New York, but surprisingly, our analyses came up with almost the exact same conclusions that was published in that study. What we found in a population of 873 hospitalized patients, including 83 patients, or about 9.1% of the population that was on Pepsid, that famotidine was associated with about a 45% reduction in in-hospital mortality and about a 48% reduction in the combined outcome of, of death and need for mechanical ventilation. We went a little bit further and examined some of the hospital course of our patients and looking at certain markers of severe disease in this population, we found that our COVID patients treated with famotidine uh, had lower levels of certain markers, including CRP and procalcitonin and a trend ferritin and such. It was clear that uh, whether we understood it or not, we were seeing uh, the same thing that they saw in the Northwell Health study. And from that, you know, I think lots and possible theories arise. But as you stated, the recent treatment of President Trump with the drug also, I think, is uh, elicited some uh, some renewed interest and such. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we'll talk in a bit about whether we should be using this now and what other data we might need to make a decision about the use of famotidine for and in what dose for COVID-19. But I'll just take a, a quick step back. So the study described uh, was sort of a single center study 
And as I recall, maybe Jeff, you could talk to us a little bit about some of the case finding definitions you used in the data set. Patients had to have received famotidine plus or minus seven days, right? Can you just tell us a bit about how they were included in the, in the study? What did the exposure, uh, how was it measured? Yeah, we, we looked at patients who had received, as you mentioned, famotidine within seven days of the screening, the positive screening, or of admission. We found that in that population, 83% of them were, were taking it orally, 17% IV, and 95% of those taking it orally were receiving the lower dose of 20 milligrams. Okay, so it was sort of a combination, it sounds like, since this wasn't a prospective randomized trial, this was a retrospective propensity-matched study. We'll talk about that in a second, how you did some adjustments. But since it's retrospective, it's not as if this was a standardized dose or a standardized route of administration. It was a kind of a combination of some oral, some IV, some before hospitalization, continued during hospitalization, some starting during hospitalization, and right. at different doses, right? So, Many combinations. Right, right. And that's, you know, natural for this type of retrospective study. Um, just to clarify, about uh, a third of the patients were taking the drug chronically prior to hospitalization, and, and it was continued during their hospitalization. Another uh, close to two-thirds received the drug only as an inpatient, and then there was a, a very small percentage, about 4%, that received it as an outpatient but were not treated with it as an inpatient. So it, it is a heterogeneous population. Right. So I wonder, because I don't remember seeing this in the results, and I wonder if it was a sample size issue, but it, was it possible to look at a dose-response relationship? In other words, those with a longer or larger dose, cumulative or otherwise, of famotidine may have had a greater protective effect versus those who were just starting, let's say, an oral? Or do you, were you able to kind of dig down that deep, or is that too difficult in this data set? Yeah, I don't think we, we had the sample size to be able to um, go into the weeds to that level. So that's one of the things that we, in the limitations to the study, addressed that we should look at the impact of drug dose and route of administration and, and the timing of therapy in a prospective randomized trials. Right, fair enough. And we know those prospective trials are, are underway right now, and we're all eagerly awaiting the results. In the meantime, having retrospective studies is helpful to kind of guide decisions, you know, in the absence of the prospective randomized trials. Now, just to clarify, we know that uh, proton pump inhibitors inhibit acid, but have no effect on histamine, whereas famotidine does affect histamine, and that may be one of its benefits, not so much the acid reduction, but rather the histamine reduction. And that's important to point out because some people get confused between PPIs and famotidine. For our listeners, there's actually now been about five or six studies that suggest PPIs may potentially increase the risk and severe outcomes of COVID-19 for a completely different reason, which is that we have acid in our stomach for a reason. One of those reasons is it blocks viruses and bacteria from getting into the GI tract. So that's sort of a different discussion for a different day. But I do wonder, did you have data on PPIs uh, like the Columbia study or, or did you look at PPIs separately? I don't believe you reported it. 
We did look at PPIs, and I did not put that in the publication. There was univariate analysis. Um, in fact, I had gotten a response that I addressed in the publication. It hasn't been published yet, where somebody was questioning that, the use of PPIs. And we saw it, uh, no effect with the PPIs, but it was a small sample size and just a univariate comparison. Fair enough. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a neat, this is all in evolving literature, so it's fair enough it wasn't in the paper. But you brought up this issue of univariate versus multivariate, and that's very important for all of these studies because there may be systematic differences in who receives famotidine versus those who do not. Are they, or those who, let's say, receive a PPI? So it's important to do your best to adjust for that. Can you talk about uh, how you would try to adjust for uh, in multivariable uh, regression in this paper? Yeah, really, when we looked at the populations before we matched, we looked at some of the major covariates that were involved in the risk of severe outcomes with COVID. And surprisingly, the groups were fairly comparable. There weren't any significant differences outside of age. So when I propensity matched, the only variable that I matched on was age. And after the match, it was, it was non-significant, but sort of on the borderline. It was about 0.07, I believe. And by non-significant, you're not talking about famotidine. You're, you're referring to differences between the groups, right, after adjustment? Differences in age between the famotidine okay. and non-famotidine groups. So this is important for our listeners who are trying to look critically at a study like this is, what efforts were made to try and adjust for differences. And it's never possible to completely adjust for everything in a retrospective study, but you guys made efforts to adjust for important covariates and you had access to those. And of course, it's a retrospective study and data collection isn't perfect in the EHR, but that sort of stood out to us as the editors as, as a very positive effort, uh, an effective way to try and adjust using propensity scoring. So as you pointed out, Dr. McKay, there were some benefits, not just in terms of clinical outcomes like mortality intubation, but also biomarkers like CRP and prolactin. But you also found that uh, there was a difference based upon the severity of the patient. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the analyses that Jeff performed was looking at the impact of the news, the uh, National Early Warning Score on the outcomes. And it turned out that the patients that had higher news scores were the ones where we were seeing a potential benefit uh, of famotidine and did not see it in uh, people that were, uh, were less sick. Going back to what uh, you had mentioned in terms of matching, the um, first of all, the difference in age between the two groups was really, uh, it was significant, but it was small. It was only, I think, two or three years, and it, uh, the group was in their mid-60s. All other major you know, comorbidities and potential uh, demographics were not significant between the two groups. So I, the major propensity matching was with respect to the age, but even at baseline, it was only like a two or three year difference. Mm -hmm. right. right. Okay. So given that this effect was larger in the more severe patients, what should our readers take from this? Should we be recommending famotidine in all comers who come into the hospital? Uh, should we be recommending it only in those with severe disease? And similarly, PPIs are so commonly used in the ICU for 
stress ulcer prophylaxis. Exactly. In a COVID patient, should we be using high-dose famotidine instead of PPIs? What are your thoughts about the clinical implications? So I think, you know, this is, um, it's all very, it's very exciting uh, and very preliminary. Without question, as you've stated, as a retrospective observational study, there, neither our, our study nor the previously published study out of New York City is not definitively uh, showing that there's a, a true benefit uh, from promotidine. We do need to wait for the randomized control study. So people should certainly not be going out and buying Pepsid and trying to take it. The issue is in terms of the potential benefit, it, it comes down to the theoretical mechanism of this benefit might be. And you know, again, this is completely theoretical, but it's also fun when we look upon this as a big jigsaw puzzle. You know, the two phases of COVID are sort of the early infective phase um, when the virus is replicating and people have the typical viral and URI symptoms. But in a subset of people that get sicker, there's the, sort of the second hyper-inflammatory response phase. And so people that have written about this talked about mechanisms, they initially discounted the concept that famotidine may have a direct uh, antiviral effect on, on SARS-CoV-2, or theories was uh, that it was binding a protease that was necessary for virus replication, and those thoughts have been discounted. Most people at this point now are focusing on the potential benefit of the drug in modulating this hyperimmune inflammatory response, which occurs later in the disease. That's sort of like stuff. the cytokine storm phase? Is that e Exactly. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to that potentially blocking the effect of histamine on the H2 receptor and potentially blocking a large amount of histamine release from activated mast cells or, or whatever. But uh, so in one, one is just really sort of the general concept of uh, modulating histamine effects in a uh, inflammatory state. And second, theorizing about the, the role that the H2 receptor itself has in contributing to immune response. So I don't think there's any, at this point of the game, I clearly have to wait for the true randomized studies before we get excited about this. But the, the observations that we've seen in terms of the group of people where it had an observational effect, particularly in those that were the sickest, seems to be focusing on the effect of fomotidine in ameliorating this late cytokine storm uh, hyperinflammatory response. Mm -hmm. So there, I, I don't think there's any, you know, there's any basis on our paper to be able to talk about an intravenous dose of Pepsid versus a PPI or the exact timing of it. But I think we've had observational results that were sort of confirmed from two large centers. Uh, the role of histamine and uh, causing inflammation and uh, with the different receptors, we feel in our gut that there is something here, but it's, it's still going to be a matter of putting the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. Right. Well, so appropriate in your gut, gut feelings, I guess, that a gut-focused medication may have some benefits. So I want to thank you guys for that. If I can sort of summarize the discussion today, we have some more data, preliminary data, retrospective data, that there could be some benefit. But, you know, our listeners and their patients should not be going out and hoarding Pepsid just because of this study or because the president used it or whatever. There's some evidence to support it, but we need more data. And we'll await those randomized controlled trials or any other retrospective studies that might emerge and continue to put the whole 
uh, the whole story together in bits and pieces. It's kind of like the blind men and the elephant, that, that old adage, we're all kind of encircling the same beast, but don't yet know what we're dealing with. So every day we get more data and uh, bit by bit we'll get there. So with that, I wanna thank both of you for submitting this important paper. And again, for our listeners who want to check it out, uh, feel free to go online. And it's this paper is Impact of Famotidine Use on Clinical Outcomes of Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. Take a good read. Check out the discussion where they go through the potential mechanisms of this therapy. And we look forward to more contributions from your group and for the story to continue to evolve. So on behalf of uh, our editors, the American Journal of Gastroenterology, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you.